This morning, we've been doing a series on the characters of Christmas, and today we're going to be discussing the wise men. So it's, um, so it's my fault that we had to sing We Three Kings, but you guys did really good with it. Uh, uh, you made it. You made um, a diamond out of coal, so that's good. Um, and uh, so to start out, just to get us warmed up, I have uh, three trivia questions to ask you about the wise men. All right, so here's the rules to this. First, you have to let kids try to answer. Now, I know some of you that's a really hard thing to do. You're just going to want to jump in and answer. But So if there's any kids in here, I know some of the kids went out, but if there's any kids in here, uh, first, you, you get a shot at it, okay? So raise your hand. The kids already know that. I'm just saying this for the adults' benefit. Raise your hand, right, and uh, I'll point out you give a chance to answer, okay? So question number one. All right. According to the Bible... Where were the wise men from? All right. Well, like I said, adults need help knowing to raise their hands first uh, and uh, to give kids a chance. Um, but that is correct. It is the East that they are from. All right. So now let's see if any kids know this one. Question number two. Why did the wise men not go back to Herod after they saw Jesus? All right, go for it. God told him not to. That's very, very, that's true. But one more detail. How did he tell him not to? In a dream, correct. Perfect. That was perfect. All right. Question three. Now, this is the big one. Now, if you, if you listened when we sang We Three Kings, you'll know the answer to this. All right. What were the three gifts named in the Bible that the wise men gave to Jesus? Oh, right back there. I, thought, I saw a hand in the back. If you want, you can whisper it in your dad's ear and he'll shout it out. No? Okay, not sure. All right. Anyone else? Frankincense is one of them. A plus. All right. What were they? anybody at the other two? All right. Uh, myrrh is good. All right. Allie? All right. Very good. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, are the gifts that we know from the scriptures were brought to Jesus. Um, so let's just talk very briefly about what those are. Gold, you know what that is. It's a, a precious metal you can make rings or dental fillings out of. Um, frankincense, you may not know this, but frankincense is a special kind of tree sap. All right? And myrrh is also a special kind of tree sap. So, so I want to be clear. I'm not saying that the gifts the wise men brought weren't the best for a child, but I could see how someone might think that. Um, but the point of the passage in Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men is not that these were gifts suitable for a child, but that they were gifts suitable for a king. And the, and the real point of the passage is that Herod was not the king that they were looking for. Uh, the point is that Jesus is the true newborn king, anointed by God, um, and as opposed by Herod, the false king put in power by Caesar. That comparison between the two kings and the two kingdoms is the main point that you should take out of that passage. So after we pray, uh, we're going to read uh, the passage from Matthew chapter 2 about these gifts that were given to Jesus. And then we're going to read a much older passage uh, about 
some other people who brought gifts to God, and we're going to try to answer the question, what type of gift does Jesus desire from us? And what is a treasure fit for a king in God's kingdom? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you um, and honor you this morning. Uh, we know that continually the angels in heaven worship uh, in your throne room and uh, that we join in with them uh, and join our voices with them in worship to you. And we praise Jesus uh, who we remember as a newborn king at this time of year. Uh, and we praise you, Jesus, for the heart that you have and the love that you have and the type of life and kingdom that you revealed to us and the opportunity you gave us to be forgiven and to have a new life in you and in that kingdom. I pray this morning that you would open up the scriptures to us, Lord. Help us to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit and to listen and obey uh, to what you have for us out of your word this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. So if you want to turn, or we also have it on the screen here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Uh, Jason taught us a few weeks ago about Herod. Um, just to kind of give some of the main points about Herod. He was not a true king of Israel but was a king appointed by Caesar to rule over Judea for the benefit of the Roman Empire. He was cruel, evil, and a murderer. When the Jews at the time imagined a coming Messiah, they were imagining a good king to free them from the Romans, the exact opposite of Herod, a sinful king whose main job was to keep them in fear of the Romans. Um, I also want to point out an interesting little detail in this verse where, like we said in the trivia question, it says the Magi were from the east. Um, so, or as we usually say, the wise men, they came on a journey from the east westward to Jerusalem. So this would have been very symbolic to the Jewish listeners and to the mainly Jewish audience of Matthew's gospel. Um, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, often we see an eastward movement in the history of Israel, symbolizes a journey away from God and away from blessedness. Uh, so, for example, Adam and Eve were ejected eastward out of Eden. Cain, after he killed Abel, went east into the land of Nod. And then the Tower of Babel was to the east of that. So you're going from sin to sin, east to east, right? Then you have Abraham in the city of Ur responds in faith to God and goes on a westward journey. Right into the sunset, but into the land of promise. The sunset symbolizing a new day to the Jewish people. Um, and also into the unknown, the sunset also symbolizes. Both which make sense to Abraham. So he responded to God in faith and made the westward journey toward the land of promise. Similarly, when Judah was conquered, the people were taken east into captivity in Babylon and Persia, but then went west 
to rebuild Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah. So to the Jewish reader uh, that Matthew is targeting, they would have heard echoes of the wise men coming from the east as symbolic of a journey into faithfulness. And after all, doesn't it take faith to go on a long journey to worship a newborn king? Uh, okay, so just remember that this for in the future when you're reading the Bible, it's just a little tidbit that you can pick up on as you're reading through all different passages. You might see this, this symbolism used of an eastward versus a westward travel as uh, representing a journey away from faithfulness or into faithfulness. Let's continue the passage. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Uh, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, of course, knows that there can only be one king. And I'm sure you can imagine how you would feel if you were the king in power and foreign dignitaries come with treasures in their treasure chests, but they're not going to open up for you. They're looking for the real one. Uh, they see Herod and they say, no, not to you, but can you help us find the real one? I think it's an understatement to say that he would be disturbed by that. Um, so for someone looking for God's Messiah, uh, which remember, Messiah means God's anointed king, then the news of a newborn king is exciting. But if you happen to be Caesar's anointed king, then it is not good news. It's a threat to your power. Okay, let's continue the passage. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Uh, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Uh, we know, of course, that this is a lie, as uh, Jason explained to us a couple weeks ago. Herod, um, what he really wanted was to kill any possible challengers. And as the scriptures go on to show, if you read into the next passage, he was willing to kill many children to defend his position against any uh, messiah. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. So we're used to hearing the story of the Christmas star, but it's worth just briefly unpacking uh, the ideas around this star. Uh, the wise men uh, clearly were using astrology, uh, which is a false science uh, that's often tied to idolatry and is explicitly forbidden by the law of Moses. Um, but within that false astrology, they somehow found something that is real. Um, so clearly what occurred is a supernatural event. You know, I think, I, I, you know, there's people who try to look at star charts and figure out, oh, it was this or that. 
It was a miracle is what it was. A supernatural event that God used to bring these specific people to him. Uh, there are similar stories that we hear happen even today from time to time where people who are practicing other religions, false religions, or even are doing evil, uh, by grace, God actually used what they were doing to lead them to him. And we can see this in another parallel with Abraham, uh, who in the city of Ur practiced idolatry. And uh, according to Jewish tradition, Abraham's family were idol makers. That was their job in Ur. Uh, it's not in the Bible, but that's a tradition. Um, but God had a plan for him and called him out of that idolatry, chose him, and sent him on the westward journey to a new land and a child of promise, just like these uh, wise men. So just a, so a thought about the, the star. Um, I also want to note the behavior of the wise men when they come into Jesus' presence. They're overjoyed, you know, and they completely accept that this makes perfect sense to them, right? That this would be the king that we're looking for, right? And it, it really goes to show that God must have already been working very much in their hearts, uh, you know, through the journey, that they, that they had the ability to recognize the kingdom of God when they saw it. Something that most people, even in Israel, who had all the law and the prophets were not capable of recognizing. Um, you know, that they that they could see that this unexpected king that uh, just, you know, all the details that we know of, you know, just a, a poor family, um, not in a palace, not uh, anybody special, but that God would be working through this to create a new kind of kingdom, that made sense to them. And they were overjoyed and bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and gave them to Jesus. Um, you know, I think that's another interesting point, right, is that the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh are what they had identified as what were, it says in there, it was, that was their treasures, right? You know, so they took what was precious to them and they offered it uh, to the Christ child. And they, um, yeah, and that's, and you can see this attitude that they, you, you know, you could imagine if it was, you know, uh, I guess just a less miraculous situation you could imagine them, you know, being let down. This isn't a king. This isn't anybody special. You know, why would the star lead us here? But that's not how they reacted. They reacted in faith in response to this miracle star that God gave them, and they worshiped. So, of course, this is the prototype of what we still do today, giving gifts on Christmas. And, of course, we should really follow the wise man's example and give gifts to Jesus. Um, but this should naturally lead us to consider, well, how do I give a gift to Jesus, and what is a good gift to offer to him? Okay, so in a way of trying to answer that question or dig a little deeper into it, we're going to turn back to way, way back at the beginning of the Bible. Um, we're going to look at the first story there about people bringing gifts to God and what kind of gift God desires, and we'll see if that can help us unpack this idea a little bit of what how can we bring a gift uh, that's a blessing to God and to Jesus? Okay. So, all right. This is Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to get into that uh, classic Christmas story about Cain and Abel, uh, which I know, I'm sure you guys read it uh, on the mantle every year, or, or sitting in front of the fire. Um, 
Okay, Genesis chapter four. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. So this is a story uh, that's notable already unto itself. We have here the first two children born, two little angels, Cain and Abel, and we're going to find out how they did as they grew up. Oops, sorry. All right. Uh, now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So we'll pause there for a second. Here we have these two brothers, and we see them taking two different routes, not just in the work that they're doing, but in their relationship toward God. And if we read the passage closely, we can see that the difference is not about the nature of the offering itself. Uh, so it would, it would be a mistake to think, oh, well, the one brought the, from the livestock, one brought from the crops, that's what was the difference. It was not about the offering itself, um, but it was about what was going on inside of the person who brought the offering. And um, we know that's true because that's a continuous teaching all throughout Scripture, that our acceptableness of our offering and our worship before God has more to do with our inward position of where our heart is before him than specifically what we do. Um, Cain was operating out of selfish ambition, jealousy, pride, anger, competition. And his offering was from the perspective of that he's going to give something from God to get the response that he wants. And he's treating God like a, as if God was a man-made idol. Right? So th this is how idols work. You create them, they're supposed to do what you want when you do what you think that will create it. Right? It's a false God. Right? As opposed, so, so Cain is actually treating God like that. Abel, on the other hand, is offer, his offering is accepted by God because it is offered in faith, looking to God as the source of life and for direction in how to live. Um, in the New Testament, we have some understanding of this. Um, in Hebrews, oh, wait, did I, uh, hold on a second. Let's go back here to this. Okay, I'll just read it. In Hebrews, it says, by faith, this is Hebrews 11:4. by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was command, commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So the idea being that Abel's offering was offered in faith, you know, in trust to God, and in an attitude of, an attitude of faith, which means I'm going to go before God and I'm going to accept from God what God wants to do, you know, and trust him. Not saying I'm going to come before God demanding as if I'm the one who has something God needs and he has to give me the response that I want out of it. 
Um, so there was a different heart attitude uh, in those offerings. So let's see what happens next. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, this is a very important passage, and we often read right through this, um, not really focusing on it, but it's really an important and key passage that ties into the whole rest of the scriptures. Um, so I want to ask this question quite clearly, because Cain actually asks the correct question here, but has the wrong answer. And this is a question that really gets at the heart of how life should be lived as a Christian. Am I my brother's keeper? So there's a whole way of life that is built around Cain's answer. His answer is clearly, no, I'm not my brother's keeper. Right? You know? And there's a whole way of life built around that, uh, which we still have in the world today. Out of this comes what I'm going to call the way of Cain. This is the way of self-worship, idolatry and war and all forms of killing, empires and slavery, the will to have power over others, money and profit over human beings and human well-being, ethnic and religious fighting and strife, disrespect, cheating, stealing, corruption. All of these are built on the premise, my brother is not my responsibility, right? Or I'm not my brother's keeper, or I have no responsibility for their benefit, just me or just mine. Um, these and many other forms of evil have come at their heart, out of the way that Cain pioneered, the way that says, no, I am not my brother's keeper. My job is to look out for me and mine. And if someone else suffers for it, that's not my problem. Of course, there is the other answer. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. This is very close to what Jesus taught us along the lines of his command to love our neighbors as ourself. Right? Now, to every generation and every place, there's a nitpicker who says, well, who counts as my brother? Or who counts as my neighbor? Jesus answered that question very thoroughly in the parable of the Good Samaritan with a strong answer and a very wide view towards who is included in the, the neighbor to love and the brother to keep. So let's see what happens next to Cain. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said, um, sorry, yeah, but the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here we have a picture of how life works following the way of Cain. A society built on abandoning God, 
and embracing violence and vengeance. Uh, we'll see that play out more as the passage develops. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. I'm going to just give my best shot at these pronunciations. Uh, and Irad was the father of Mehujael, and Mehujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. So now we have a whole city of people following the way of Cain. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Uh, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. By now you may be asking why I'm reading this stuff, but hold tight, there is an important item coming up. Uh, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments, so me and Dave, he's our father, uh, and pipes. Zillah also had a son, uh, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, oh, here we go, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So am I the only one that has a little bell go off in my head when I hear these numbers? If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech is avenged 77 times? Any, any other passages you can think of that talk about seven and 77? Um, in Matthew 18, 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Um, the Jewish listeners to Jesus would not have missed the connection. They know from Genesis that the policy put in place by Cain's grandson Lamech that an injury must be avenged not just seven times, but 77 times, that this type of living eventually fills the whole world with nothing but violence and wrath. In fact, floods the whole world with nothing but violence and wrath, right? So there's this idea, right, of uh, the spirit of Cain and of his descendants, this idea of you wrong me, watch out. I'm coming at you times 77, right? And, that, if you, and that, that spirit, if that becomes the animating spirit of a person's heart or of a society or of a family, that it just fills the world with wrath. You know, how many wrong, if you're going to multiply by 77 every time, how many wrongs does it take before everyone is at war with everyone? Right? Not much. Um, so they would not have missed that. Um, Jesus opens, but Jesus opens a path in an excessively vengeful world to reveal a more beautiful kingdom where that same effect that multiplies on wrath instead multiplies on forgiveness. A more beautiful kingdom where wrath is eaten up and digested through excessive forgiveness. If we forgive 77 times for each wrong done, then eventually there's not enough wrath left to cancel out all the forgiveness. And a more beautiful kingdom can emerge. So let's finish off the story in Genesis. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, 
God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So we see that this whole empire Cain was building, and this whole time and place where people, uh, was a whole time and place where people did not worship the Lord. Uh, but behold, a new son was given, and worship again started. So we don't have time to go through it all this morning, but Cain's ideas and ways of living uh, continued to spread throughout the world. And honestly, a good portion of human history is just the continuation of cycles of vengeance and uh, expanding wrath, uh, cycles of selfishness, violence. Um, but there is a path of hope that walks its way through the scriptures where God is pointing the way to a different kind of life. First, he does it through the law of Moses, which puts limits on the idea of revenge and tries to establish a justice out of chaos and make the nation of Israel into a light to the nations so that the way of God can be lived out and demonstrated. And then you can see it through the Hebrew prophets, who again and again spoke judgments against neighboring kingdoms and against their own people for this type of behavior of injustice, evil, and wrath. And God has finally fully revealed what life in his kingdom is through the way of life taught to us by Jesus. Um, and if you'd want to study that in more detail, if you weren't able to hear it, I'd encourage you to go back and look, look at our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, where we did a very thorough scouring through the way of life that Jesus taught. And, um, but there are certain key points that we can look at, like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemy, and of course, as we already talked about earlier today, forgiving 70 times 7. And so many other teachings that Jesus gave us. So as ugly as the world that follows in Cain's image is, the kingdom of heaven, which follows Jesus' image, is more than 77 times as beautiful. And the question that we want to answer on this the day after Christmas um, is which kingdom are we going to live in? Are we going to keep multiplying by 77 each time someone wrongs us? Or that the world takes a turn against us and respond in wrath with multiplying anger and hatred? Or are we going to be the anti uh, you know, the, the opposite of that. Are we going to be the forgivers? And if someone wrongs us, we forgive them even more than the quantity of the wrong as following in Jesus' way. Um, imagine, you know, yeah, so we have to make a choice of which kingdom we're going to live in. And an important fact is that these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Cain, or you could consider it the kingdom of Herod, or you could just call it the world, they will not mix um, it's very important to know that because it's very tempting to say, well, I'll take Herod and Cain when I need someone to fight for me, and I'll take Jesus when I want to pray. Right? But there can only be one king, and there can only be one kingdom. If you try to say, oh, I want a little of both, um, then you're going to wind up just with one, the one that's not Jesus. Um, Imagine if the wise men had brought their treasures and said, we want both Jesus and Herod. We want Herod because he's good for power and will defeat our enemies. And we want Jesus for religion. 
Uh, this will not work. As Jesus taught us, we cannot serve two masters. We will hate one and despise the other. Uh, either Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. And if we try to have two lords, it's not going to work. That's just the way it is. So the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh for Jesus, gifts fit for a king, but in which kingdom? I'm guessing that Herod would have been pleased with such gifts. I'm guessing that Cain would have been pleased with such gifts. Jesus accepts those gifts if given from a Christian heart. But I don't see any signs in the scripture that he ever used them to decorate his palace. I think the gifts that Jesus would prefer are those that reflect the riches of his kind of kingdom. The prophet Micah discussed such gifts when he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So if we want to bring a gift to Jesus this Christmas, and we should, then let's give him a gift fit for a king in his kind of kingdom. Let us apply our efforts to live in the way that Jesus taught, with justice and mercy towards our brothers, sisters, and neighbors, to agree with God that we are, in fact, our brother's keepers, and to turn away from worldly pride, but instead to be simple, humble people. For the creator God himself, who cannot be contained by all of heaven and earth, was content to dwell in the womb of a peasant girl who lived on the poor end of Nowhereville, and is content to dwell within the hearts of us sinners. As God said through the prophet, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you in your beauty. That you are not like other kings or rulers or lords or rich. That it's not about glory to you and you wanting to defeat and harm your enemies, but Lord, instead that you're one who saves and rescues your enemies. You're one who takes those just like us who have done so many things, not just in ignorance towards you, but in outright disrespect and sin towards you. Yet your response to that is not to avenge the harm given to you, but to forgive us and to go so far beyond that as even to adopt us as children in your family. And give us the preferred place which you stepped down from to be um, that we would receive the blessing which you gave up, Lord. And Father, I pray that this day after Christmas that you would fill our hearts with the Christmas spirit, that we would also want to bow down low to serve our neighbors, to serve um, even those around us who are opposed to us, Lord. And uh, I pray that we would portray the beauty of your kingdom and of the way of life that you taught to the best of our efforts. 
And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us the grace to strengthen us so that we can obey the teachings that you gave us. And I pray that this obedience to your teachings would be a gift for you today and over the next period of time, and that it would be pleasing to you. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.